Welcome to the Redeemer Church Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are blessed as you join us in walking through the Word of God together. To learn more about our ministry in St. Albans, Vermont, please visit RedeemerChurchBT.com. one of the pastors here at Redeemer Church, uh, and I am thrilled to see all of you here with us this morning. What a privilege it is to, uh, to, to be here. Uh, I am so grateful that we can worship the Lord together and sing praises to His name and hear His word preached. Uh, it truly is a, a wonderful morning. Uh, we have been going through the book of Colossians. And we are currently finishing up with chapter 3, and we're actually going into chapter 4, but only verse 1, because whoever was in charge of kind of doing the chapter separations, I think kind of flubbed on this one a little bit and kind of put the kind of the last verse that should have been in chapter 3 into verse 1, so don't be confused there. We didn't get the numbering wrong or anything like that. Uh, but in chapter 3, we really hear about this new life that we have in Christ. We are we're, we're new creations. We've been, we've been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we are to put on our new selves and we're to take off our old selves. And so the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Colossae and saying in chapter 3, really, that, that you are to live out this new life that you have in Jesus Christ. And this looks differently in, in different ways, although it, though it still kind of looks the same, but you are to live out your, your life for Christ in a particular way within the church. You're supposed to love one another. You're supposed to bear with one another. You're supposed to, to show each other this, this grace that Christ has shown us, but we're also supposed to live out this new life in Christ also in our home life. And in our work life, we're supposed to live out our, our Christian life in all areas. And so last week we talked about how this new life is to bleed into our relationships between our husbands and wives. We talked about how this new life in Christ is supposed to infiltrate and bleed into the way that we treat our children and how we treat our parents. Now before we go much further, I do want to say that we at Redeemer teach and believe unapologetically that all of Scripture, all of Scripture, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And we believe this because we affirm what Scripture says about itself, that it is God-breathed. And we will forever stand firmly on the reality that Scripture is inerrant and infallible, though we human beings are not. And we may mess up from time to time on our understanding of this inerrant and infallible book. But that is the posture from which I and the other pastors will always approach Scripture from. We are dedicated to never picking and, and choosing what is what we particularly find palatable in Scripture and just preaching on that and leaving everything else by the wayside because it's, it's, it's easier. Because I think to do so, if we, if we were to do that, I think that would mark us as a church in spiritual decline. But the position that we do hold does mean that we must deal with difficult texts, right? 
difficult passages that we must do the work to understand and teach. And today we're actually dealing with one such, pa- such passage. Colossians 3, 22 through 4, 1 has been used by many opponents of the Christian faith to discredit the Bible or claim that it is in, uh, antiqui- uh, sorry, antiquated. No, that's not the right word. Antiquated. There we go. Gosh, man. Antiquated at best or evil at worst because of Paul's words on slavery here. And the question that often mills about in our, in our minds as we're reading passages like this, even if we've been Christians for years, is are they right? Are they right? So I want to spend some time this morning explaining why the opponents of Christianity are not right and attempting the best I can to clear up some misconceptions that many have about slavery and the Bible. And in this sermon, I want to answer the questions, does the Bible condone or condemn slavery? I want to answer the question, is is ancient slavery even the same as what we kind of think of in modern-day America as slavery? And lastly, I want to answer the question, is there anything for us to take away from a group of passages such as this? But before we get into answering those questions, let us pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for this wonderful privilege of being able to come together and just be able to to worship you, Lord, to lift up your name in song and praise. But Lord, as we, as we open up Your Word and as we, as we seek to understand it, Lord, I pray, God, that we are guided by Your Holy Spirit this morning. That we are not guided by our own minds, our own ideas, Lord, our own, our own reasoning, Lord, but we are guided by Your Holy Spirit. Lord, that, that He illuminates this passage to us, helps us understand it, and, and pulls forth from it the truth that we are to seek. And I pray this in your son's precious name. Amen. All right, I'm going to move this over a little bit because I keep stepping on something that cracks. I don't want to just kind of like fall through the floor. Now, if you'll momentarily kind of bear with me, I'm going to get just a a little little bit Bible nerdy on you. Uh, I want you to imagine just for a moment that when you are studying your Bible, it's like walking down a path, right? Now, there might be some twists and turns as you walk down this path, but, but often enough, it's, it's, it's fairly straightforward. It's not, a, not a too difficult of a path to walk down, but there are other times when you will approach a, a fork in the road. Now, you can rely on your own sensibilities and, and kind of take the, the path that seems most correct to you using your own, your own power of, of navigation, or you can pull out a map. Now, maps take a little extra time, especially if you're from my generation, right? You have to unfold it. You have to learn what the lines of latitude and longitude on the map even mean. You have to trace your finger along the map to find where you currently are. You may even have to take out a compass. And it takes a little bit of effort. Actually, it can sometimes take a lot of effort, but there is a much higher chance that you choose the correct path if you do use the map. Now, you might choose the right path if you simply pick the path that looks best to you using your own intuition, but it will not be because you actually knew the way to go, it's just because you happen to be lucky, right? 
But if you choose not to use the map, you'll most likely end up picking the path that doesn't actually lead you to where you want to go. Reading Scripture is very much like this. Because you see, God has written Scripture with enough clarity that when we read it, much of what we need to know is, is straightforward. It's not hard to understand. right? For instance, it's clear. It is laid out for us in Scripture without, without any shadow of a doubt that in order to be saved, we must place our faith in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. Right? That, that's clear. What we need to know for faith and salvation is clear. But there are moments when we hit certain passages that are a little bit more difficult that are a little bit less clear, and often not always, but often we are met with a fork in the road and we are unsure of what the passage actually means. Now there are two ways that we can try to understand Scripture here. The first is what is called exegesis. It's called exegesis. And the second is what is called isogesis. So you have exegesis and you have isogesis. And one is much more of a sure way of going down the right path in understanding Scripture. Exegesis means to interpret the Bible through the lens of the author. We want to know what the author meant when he wrote the book or the letter. Now, this takes time. This takes a minute. It means trying to understand the culture that the author lived in. It means trying to understand the language and the writing style he used. It means trying to see how, how his letter kind of fits in within the entire scope of Scripture. So it, it takes a minute. It takes some studying. But when you do all this, it doesn't necessarily mean that you'll come away with a perfect understanding of a hard passage each and every time, but you will be much more likely to come away with a fuller understanding. Now, the second way to figure out what a text means, again, is called isogesis. This is when you read Scripture or when you read Scripture, and instead of, of taking the time to understand the culture, the language, the writing style, and all of the rest of the author, and allowing that to shape your understanding, you instead read into the text your own culture. You read into the text your own ideas, your own preconceived notions of things. And nine out of ten times, and I would I would kind of like to say 10 out of 10 times, isogesis will land you in an incorrect understanding of Scripture. You do not want to read your Bible using isogesis. It's not the way to go. And so when you approach that fork in the road during your Bible study, the surest way to choose the path that will lead to a correct understanding is always going to be through exegesis. We want the text and the author to determine its meaning, not our modern ideas. Now, I wanted to lay that foundation because when we approach the topic of slavery in the Bible, we can accidentally be guilty of eisegesis. We can read back into the text a form of slavery that was not the same as the slavery that was practiced in the Roman world in this first century. We actually need to understand, friends, that, that when we approach this topic of slavery in the Bible, we have baggage, a lot of baggage, that we bring with us, right? 
Our idea of slavery as modern Western Christians has been shaped by the horrors of the transatlantic slave trade that occurred in the 17th and 18th centuries, where white slave traders would travel to the shores of Africa and were, were sold black slaves by their fellow Africans. And it was a brutal and evil system, and it was a system that was ethnically based. Those who were black were, were seen as inhuman, and, and therefore, what did it matter if they were enslaved and treated horribly? Now, it is hard for us to divorce that form of slavery that was based on racism with the type of slavery we see here in Colossians. But again, here's where we must strive for exegesis, not eisegesis. We must strive for exegesis, not eisegesis. We cannot read modern slavery into this text if we are to truly understand what's going on. Now, I'm going to have to narrow the scope of this discussion of slavery to the New Testament specifically, simply for time, so I hope you understand now, some slavery in the New Testament context was the result of military conquest, but mostly from economic troubles. Notice how in the ESV version of the Bible that we typically read from here at Redeemer, the word used in this passage is not the word slave, but it's the word bondservant. It's the word bondservant. Now, this was an effort by modern translators to kind of help us understand better the societal institution here in the New Testament. You see, when someone in the first century went into debt, there were really two options for them. And the first one was to be placed in prison, or the second was to kind of place themselves into slavery in order to work off that debt. And once the debt was repaid through servitude, they were either free to go or they could stay with their master if they so choose. Now, at times, the person in debt would even be forced to put his entire family into slavery if his debt was large enough. So it is very important to understand that financial poverty, financial poverty was the driving force behind slavery in the New Testament, not race. In fact, there are many documented cases during this time period of Roman Africans owning slaves as well. So it was not race-based. Now, another difference between modern and ancient slavery was that roughly 50% of Roman citizens were in some type of bond servanthood. 50%. It was so common that it was simply thought of as a, as a part of everyday life. It wasn't, it wasn't weird. It wasn't odd. Another contrast was that those who were bond servants could also rise to high positions within the household they were indentured to and could even rise to prominent civic positions within the government, though that, those cases were, were somewhat rare, but it could happen. Now, while these are very big differences between modern and New Testament forms of slavery, there are still some similarities. There's big differences, but there's also some similarities. Though at times some bond servants would grow close in their relationship with their master uh, in their household, more often than not, they were viewed as little more than property or tools to be used. And they would be treated as such. It was not uncommon for many of these bond servants to be treated harshly and with disdain. Now, while this form of slavery is different than what we typically think of in terms of slavery, it doesn't make it any less reprehensible or ungodly. 
And so as, as Christians, that kind of leaves us in a strange position, right? Does Paul not speaking out to abolish this form of slavery, even if it is different than our modern ideas of slavery, mean that the Bible supports it? That's a, that's a tough position to be in, right? Well, theologian Wayne Grudem actually answers this question very well when he said, the Bible does not approve or command slavery any more than it approves or commands persecution of Christians. When the author of Hebrews commends his readers by saying, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one, Hebrews 10.34. When the author of Hebrews said that, that does not mean that the Bible supports the plundering of Christians. That would make sense, right? It only means, he continues, that if Christians have their property taken through persecution, they should still rejoice because of their heavenly treasure, uh, which cannot be stolen. Similarly, when the Bible tells slaves to be submissive to their masters, it does not mean that the Bible supports or commands slavery, but only that it tells people who are slaves how they should respond. Does that make sense? So simply because you do not see an explicit command not to do something within the pages of Scripture does not mean that we are to see it as an endorsement. That's what that means. Take polygamy as another example. As Scripture teaches from the very opening of the chapters of Genesis, marriage is to be exclusively between one man and one woman. However, sinful man distorted this understanding of marriage and hence the rise of polygamy. Now, are we to believe that polygamy is acceptable because the Bible doesn't say the exact words polygamy is bad? Of course not. We know that polygamy is wrong because it goes against what the Bible does say about marriage, and so there is no need for such a command. Likewise, we know that slavery and bond servanthood is wrong, not because it's ever explicitly stated within the New Testament, but because it violates what Scripture says about how we are to love our neighbor about how, how all human beings have great dignity and worth given solely by the fact that we are all image bearers of God. It's actually the, those are the principles, the very biblical principles that led to the eradication of slavery in the West. And so Paul is speaking into the reality in which he lived. And rather than attempting a massive societal upheaval, his primary concern, his primary concern was speaking to these brand new baby Christians who either found themselves to be bondservants or found themselves to be masters, and he speaks to how each are to behave in that reality. Now the question that we still have is, are there any biblical principles that we can gain from this passage? and apply to our lives, though our worlds are vastly different? Well, the short answer to that is, is, is yes. Right, of course. Yes, there are biblical principles that we can take from this. Now, it would be a mistake, however, to say that there is an exact one-to-one -one parallel to this passage in our culture today. By the grace of God, we in the United States have abolished slavery. So there is no exact one-for-one -one parallel that we can draw 
from. Still, though, there are spiritual and ethical truths that Paul brings to the foreground here that we can wisely and with discernment take and apply today. So that's what we want to do now. So let's first see what Paul has to say to the bondservants and what godly principles we can glean from that. If you have your Bibles with you, open them up to Colossians 3. Colossians 3. And Paul begins in verse 22 telling the bondservants that they are to obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Now this was actually the same command that he gave the children in verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything. Now it does go without saying that this obedience was to have its limits. While they were to obey their earthly masters, they were not to do so if they command or if they were commanded uh, to violate their heavenly master, right? There is no earthly position of authority that can be occupied by a human being that can ever supersede the one who has been given all authority over heaven and earth, over Jesus Christ. And so if they were given a command by their earthly master that would have them that would have them violate their conscience, that would have them sin against God, then they were to not obey. And we can take that principle and apply it to ourselves as well. And now, this can be a, a obviously difficult truth to hold on to in our culture, especially in Vermont. Especially when we are constantly being asked by our workplaces to bend the knee to ungodly practices. You only have to think of the school systems where Christian teachers are being asked to set aside biblical truth in favor of the social contagion of transgenderism, right? And yet, even in circumstances such as that, we are called to obey our master in heaven and reject outright the ungodly commands of earthly authorities, whatever the consequence may be. However, unless those commands that we receive are truly calling us to sin or to deny Jesus, we would do well to follow Paul's command and obey those who are in positions of authority over us. But, and here's the hard part, we are to not simply do that half-heartedly. We are not to obey those in, in uh, positions of authority over us half-heartedly or out of begrudging obligation. That's the hard part. There's actually a very specific work ethic that Paul believes that Christian bondservants, and by way of extension, all Christians who work are to have. And he lays it out in the rest of verse 22. He says, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Now, how should you obey them? That's the question he's about to answer. How should you obey these earthly masters? And how should, how should we, brothers and sisters in Christ, obey those who are in authority over us? Now think of the worst boss you've ever had when I read this next part. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers. So now, eye service and as people pleasers is actually an interesting phrase that is an English translation of just one word in Greek. But there are actually two ideas that the Greek brings forward and what Paul is, is trying to get across here. Now the first is, uh, is that, that phrase, eye service. 
And what Paul means by not working by way of eye service is only working when there are eyes on you. That's what, that's what he's talking about here. There's an old commercial that actually illustrates this point that another pastor used once. He said it, it portrayed, this commercial portrayed an office where several employees took advantage of the boss's absence. They played games, they took naps, and generally shirked their responsibilities. But they actually received advance warning of his return to the office from the smell of an obviously unpleasant aftershave, providing them with time and opportunity to resume their duties and give the impression of having been diligently at work all along. But when the boss switched to the new and improved aftershave, he returned unannounced and he caught them in the act. Now, that's exemplary of only working for eye service, of only working when there are eyes on you. And brothers and sisters, that should not be characteristic of our work, of the Christian's work. That should not be our ethic at the workplace. We are to work the same, whether we have people watching us or people not watching us. We shouldn't just work in other words, to just avoid punishment. That's not the goal when we go to work. Now, not only should work not be done by way of eye service, only working when being watched, but it should also not be done out of people-pleasing. That's the a, a second kind of thing that bring, is being brought out in the Greek here. Don't work simply to please man. Because we as fallen human beings, we've talked about this many times before, but we as human beings have a craving we have a craving for attention and affirmation, especially the generation that's coming up now, the advent of social media. Why do you post things on social media? <laughs> Don't. <laughs> Often it's just simply out of this desire that we have for affirmation, for, for people to, to look at us and, and to see us. And at times, this can be the driving force behind our work as well. We attempt to do a good job only so that maybe our, our bosses will notice us. And we'll get some sort of praise or, or a pat on the back. And Paul is telling the bondservants that they should not simply work to please their masters. They should not simply work to gain accolades and attention to themselves. That isn't to be their driving motivation in their work. And neither should it be our own. Because we've got to understand, brothers and sisters, when we work in such a way, whether it be for, for eye service or to please man, we are working, ultimately, if we are working in that way, we are working to glorify ourselves. That's what that means. That means that in our workplace, we have put ourselves on the throne of our lives. We want the attention. We want, the, we want the, the praise and the accolades. Or, if we're just doing it for the eye service, we want to stay within this realm of comfortability. We don't truly want to work hard. We just want to just kind of coast through and only work hard when we have to. That is working for the self. And so Paul, he is rejecting this is rejecting this reason for working. And again, not just talking to bond servants, but talking to any Christian who works as well. 
And so what? What then? What is to characterize? What is to motivate? What is to energize our work, if not just ourselves? What is it to be? Well, the work that the Christian does, Paul says in verse 22, has a higher purpose. It's got a higher function to it. It's got a, it's got a higher telos, a higher aim. Paul says in verse 22, it is to be done with a sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Verse 23, Paul, for emphasis, repeats himself, saying, whatever you do, meaning, meaning whatever task that you are given by your master or your employer or whoever it may be, work heartily. Work from the heart as for the Lord and not for men. So Paul here is actually giving, going back to the context of the New Testament, talking specifically to the bondservants, he is actually giving immense dignity to the work of the bondservants. He is telling them that the work that they do for their earthly masters is not being done just to please their earthly masters, because they often they just saw themselves as tools. If you see, if you're being told again and again, if you're being treated as a tool, you would just see yourself as a tool and the work that you're doing just almost meaningless. You're just doing it as a tool. But, but Paul here is giving them immense dignity, saying that the work that you're doing is not for your master. It's for, it is for the master. It is for the Lord himself. And so Paul is saying here that Christians, whether they be bondservants or whether they be uh, employers or employees today, are to fulfill their responsibility based on principle, not on pragmatism, not just to get the job done. We work regardless of who may be present, conscious, we are to be conscious that there is another eye upon us. Or as Paul says, you are serving the Lord Christ, and He is always watching. And so we labor and we serve and we do our obligations ultimately to please Christ and not people. We must avoid a merely routine or mechanical performance. And we are to do all things with the sincerity of the heart. Reverence or fear for the Lord, says Paul, must govern all of our actions because it is for Him ultimately that we are working. And so, friends, I hope, you don't, I hope you don't miss what that means. If we are ultimately working for the Lord, that means that our work is an act of worship. Do you understand that? Our work is an act of worship. We as Christians have mistakenly relegated worship to Sunday mornings. To what, to what singing is, right? And that is worship. Don't get me wrong. We sing praises to God. We are worshiping Him. When you're listening attentively to, to, to a sermon, you're, you're worshiping Him in your heart, right? But that's not where it stays. We are to be living sacrifices, as, as Paul in Romans tells us. That means every bit of our lives is to be a, a praise, an act of worship to God, including our work. And this is the truth that the Puritans, actually, were famous for exemplifying. They were known far and wide for their incredible work ethic. 
However, unfortunately, when we look back on them in history, we kind of look at them through a distorted lens. I think you've heard me talk about that before. When we think of the Puritans and their work ethic, we, we think of men and women kind of with, with swollen faces and put their hands to the plow with a, with a uh, furrowed brow and a scowl, right? That's kind of what we think of when we think of Puritans. We think of men and women who legalistically uh, worked from sun up to, to sun down and who thought of leisure and fun as, as something to be loathed. Well, friends, nothing could be further from the truth. That was not the Puritans at all. They worked hard, but friends, they worked cheerfully. They took the truth that Paul is bringing forth in our passage this morning, and they truly lived it. They believed it. They saw everything they did, even the most meaning, menial tasks, as an opportunity to glorify their Father in heaven. Puritan Richard Baxter said, there is a difference on the surface, on the surface, between washing dishes and preaching the Word of God. But as it pleases God, none at all. So both washing dishes and preaching the Word pleases God. Do you know that? Baxter explains how this can be. He says, God looks not principally at the external part of the work. He doesn't look at the, the external part of the work, but much more at the heart of he who does it. That is how both can be equally pleasing to the Lord. Baxter and the other Puritans knew that their work was to be a glorious act of worship to God that begins in the heart. From your heart, Paul says in verse 23, you are to do your work for the Lord. So, so don't do it begrudgingly or apathetically, but joyfully, knowing that you are glorifying God, even if there's no one around to see it. Again, Baxter says, be laborious and diligent in your work. And if you, listen, if you cheerfully Serve God in the labor of your hands with a heavenly and obedient mind. It will be as acceptable to Him as if you had spent all that time in more spiritual exercises. Can you believe that? That should be our attitude when we go in to work on Monday. What am I, how am I going to work today? From where am I going to work today? Am I going to be absent-minded and absent-hearted when I work? Am I thinking in my mind that the only person I'm actually working for right now is my employer? Or do I see the big picture? Do I understand that even my work right now is for the Lord? Therefore, I need to do it cheerfully and from my heart. Friends, this is a biblical work ethic that we must recover. No matter, no matter what your job is, whether you be, whether you be a pastor, whether you be a, a stay-at-home mom, whether you be a, a nurse, a doctor, whatever you may be, we are to work from the heart. That's the work ethic that we are called to have. Now, amazingly, Paul does, doesn't stop there. He tells the bond servants that their work is for the Lord, and that it brings with it a heavenly reward. Look at verse 23 again, going into verse 24. 
Whatever you do, work heartily, or from, from the heart, as other translations put it, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. Again, you are serving the Lord Christ. I want you to remember again the context here. The bondservant was seen as a member of the household, yes. But very rarely were they seen as anything other than tools. And so therefore, they actually had no part in the inheritance of that family. And so what, what a beautiful thing for these bondservants to hear. When this, when this letter to the church in Colossae was read aloud, and these, these bondservants heard it read aloud, that they were being told that they were now part, these, these people who just view themselves as tools, view themselves as lesser, they are now being told that they are part of a more wonderful family than they can possibly imagine. They are now part of the family of God. They are, they are children, they are, they are daughters and sons of the Lord Most High, and their Heavenly Father has made them qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints. What a beautiful thing for them to know and to hear that, that their work, even if they're never free, that the work that they do for the Lord is going to gain them an inheritance simply because of them being children of God. A part of that inheritance, we read in verse 25, is that justice will be done. It says, For the wrongdoer, wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. So Jesus, he's, he's, he's offering, not just the bondservants, but us as well, he's, he's offering the bondservants and us an eternal hope which includes justice without favoritism. We live in a world where, where many justice systems all over the world, and we could, we could make the case for the one in America to be, to be corrupt, to not be perfect, but that's, that's not the justice of God. His justice is perfect. And so Paul here is making this astonishing claim, and many philosophers, many Roman philosophers would have hated it, they assumed that because the slave or bond servants were human tools, how you treated them had no ethical bearing whatsoever. But Paul rejects that outright. And where, where these bond servants have suffered man's inhumanity to man, God will bring them justice. And that is true for the injustices done against us as well. Now, I want to have a little quick aside here. I wasn't really planning on putting this in, but, but I think it's really important for us to understand that when we read passages like that, sometimes our mind can, can go in a, in a poor direction, right? We hear the justice that, that the Lord is going to bring about on those who do evil towards us, and so we don't have to worry about that, that getting, getting back at the person who does evil to us because the Lord is going to take care of that. But sometimes we can hear that, and we can read that, and we start looking at the person who has done us evil, and just kind of start wringing our hands, kind of like a, like a villain in a movie, and saying, oh, you're going to get yours. <laughs> right? Yeah, but that should not be our heart here. Our heart for the person who does us injustice is praying for them that they don't receive the justice of God. 
right? We should be praying for them that they receive the grace and mercy from God that we ourselves received in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should pray for them. We should weep over them. That the sinfulness of their heart is, is bringing them to, to treat us in this way and we should want to see them, to see them become people transformed. That should be our heart for the people who do, do us injustice. Jesus tells us to love our enemies, not desire for them to get their comeuppance. However, however, we can rest assured that perfect justice will be done. Paul then concludes this portion of his letter to the church in Colossae by addressing masters in 4.1. In chapter 4, verse 1 and Now, oops, got a little mixed up there. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And again, the driving force behind treating their bondservants justly and fairly, yet again, is rooted in Christ. Because we know that these are, these are believing masters that Paul is referencing here. And he is reminding them that they are not the ultimate authority in life. They, too, have a higher authority. They, too, have a master, the ultimate and highest master who they themselves serve as well. And their master, Jesus, is to be the template in how they are to treat their bondservants. Not as property, but as people who are image bearers of God. Even, even as brothers and sisters in Christ, as was the case with Onesimus and Philemon. You guys remember that? The book of Philemon? Philemon was the master of Onesimus. And Onesimus ended up running away from his master and, and through a variety of circumstances ended up meeting Paul. And Onesimus ended up placing his faith in Jesus Christ, which is a wonderful thing, as did Philemon. Philemon also became a Christian. And so Paul writes this letter to Philemon saying that he was actually going to be sending Onesimus back to him. Now Paul points Philemon to the sovereignty of God in this whole affair and says that this very well may be why Onesimus ran from you to begin with. This whole thing was orchestrated by God, that he may be parted from you, that Onesimus may be parted from Philemon for just a little while, so that he may have him forever. But not as a bondservant, much more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. So Paul is telling these believing masters to treat their bondservants with fairness and justice and even possibly as brothers and sisters in Christ. This massively changed the dynamic of the bondservant-master relationship because it is putting all under the ultimate authority of Christ. And this would really have an impact on anyone who has a position of authority over others. If, if you ever find yourself in the position of an employer or in any other circumstance where you have people working under you and, and you have that authority, you must remember that your aim is to treat them as your master in heaven treats you. So, as I 
conclude this sermon? What's the ultimate takeaway from this passage that seems so irrelevant to the conditions in the 21st century? And it's simple, really. All life, whether in work or family or ministry, be it hugely significant or utterly mundane, all of life is subject to the sovereignty and is governed by the Lordship of Christ Jesus and is to be lived ultimately for His glory. Christ Jesus is your Master. We are to fear the Lord and not man. And all that we do is ultimately for the Lord. And it is He whom you serve. And it is from Him that your eternal reward is coming. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. God, I pray that you help us. Lord, remember and, and know, God, not just in our minds, but, but really know in our hearts Lord, that whatever our lot in life, wherever we may be, wherever, for whomever we may work, to whomever we owe allegiance, let us never forget that we do it all for the glory of your Son. Pray this in his wonderful and beautiful name. Amen.